All right, let's turn our Bibles to Judges chapter number 4 tonight. Judges chapter number 4. And uh, man, what a blessing to be in the house of God. Amen. Judges chapter number 4. I appreciate all the Lord did for us this morning. And uh, anything that was done, the Lord did. Amen. And He ought to get the glory for it. Judges chapter number 4. And uh, I want to preach to you about a, I, I believe, sort of an unusual, I won't say it's unfamiliar passage of Scripture, but it is an unusual passage of Scripture uh, tonight. Judges chapter number 4. And to give you a little idea of what's going on before we read our text, we are here in the early days of the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges is a commentary on God's faithfulness and Israel's rebellion. And over and over and over again, a pattern is is set forth and established in the book of Judges. And in fact, the Bible goes out of its way to tell us that this was indeed a pattern and that this is indeed the purpose of the book of Judges, wherein the children of Israel would rebel against God. God would deliver them into the hands of oppressors. And then once they had been broken and they would cry out to God, ask for help, deliverance, God would send a judge. And a judge was an unusual office in the land of Israel. Uh, judges uh, at times, if for instance, Samuel was a prophet. Sometimes judges would prophesy. Now, they didn't really reign like a king reigned. God was the king over Israel. But they certainly were an authority uh, in the land of Israel. And more than anything, they were a martial influence. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, they'd rally the people to by the help and strength of God cast off their oppressors. And so God would raise up a judge who would deliver them from their oppressors and they would turn to the Lord, but it didn't take long. Because, you know, that's the thing about the flesh, man. It never takes long. Didn't take long and the children of Israel would one again, once again backslide into stubbornness, rebellion, idolatry, and the whole sort of circle, the whole cycle would begin anew. And that's what you have throughout the book of Judges, at least through the first 16 chapters of it. From chapter 17 on, it just shows unmitigated, unbridled depravity and, and degenerate behavior. But we're in the early days of the book of Judges. Already the Lord has allowed them to be oppressed by several different kings and to be delivered from them. And if you were to read the beginning of chapter 4, we'll not take the time to do it tonight, but you'd find that the children of Israel, through their disobedience to God, they've fallen under the oppressive hand of a Canaanite king by the name of Jabin. And the children of Israel are suffering sorely under his authority and under his mistreatment. And so the children of Israel cry out to the Lord, and the Lord uh, raises up for them a deliverer by the name of Barak and also a prophetess by the name of Deborah. And these two individuals are used to both rally and lead the children of Israel in rebellion, not against God, but against this pagan Gentile king. And so there is war afoot, we might say, and the children of Israel are fighting the uh, people of Canaan and seeking their liberation and their deliverance from them. Uh, We find in the Word of God that Jabin had a general by the name of Sisera. And Sisera is leading and commanding the Canaanite forces. And so look with me at verse 15. I want you to notice we'll pick up our reading there. The Bible says, And the Lord discomfited Sisera, he is the general of the Canaanite forces, and all his chariots and all his host with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. But Barak pursued after the chariots, and after the host unto Herosheth of the Gentiles. And all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, 
and there was not a man left. Howbeit Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn in to me. Fear not. And when he had turned in unto her into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. Again he said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be when any man doth come and inquire of thee and say, Is there any man here that thou shalt say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent and took an hammer in her hand, went softly unto him and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. Behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him, and said unto him, Come, I will show thee the man whom thou seekest. And when he came into her tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us gather in this place. Lord, we've already felt uh, particularly your presence. Lord, you've already spoken to our hearts, ministered to us through the singing, through the special, through the offertory, Lord. And we're just so thankful that we can come to church with God. Lord, we're so thankful that you'll meet with us. and God, that you'll minister in our midst. Lord, we love you. I pray that you'd take the word of God, use it tonight, wield it in a way that would bring you glory and that would draw us closer unto Thee and make us more into the image of Christ. We'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, we love You. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you love gruesome passages in the Scripture? I do. Amen. I like my Bible a little PG-13. Somebody say amen to that. I like the fact that the Bible goes out of its way to show us some of the real and serious moments of life. And when we come to Judges chapter 4, what we find is one of the most grisly and gruesome moments in Scripture. Really something that probably not even the minds in Hollywood would think to develop. But it happened exactly as your Bible says that it happened. Wherein this great general by the name of Sisera, fleeing the battle, runs, takes refuge in the tent of this woman named Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. And she, in that moment, makes a decision that would forever change her life. She sides with the people of God. Can I remind you, she is, she is a Kenite. She's not an Israelite. Now, we'll talk here in a moment about what God had done in her family. But I would just remind you, she had no obligation to do what she did in that moment. And she takes this tent stake in her hand drives it through the temples of this man named Sisera, and in just a few hammer strokes delivers millions of people that have been oppressed and that have been put under boot. When I read this passage of Scripture, if I'm going to be frank with you, I sometimes struggle. When I read a passage, I don't just want to learn facts about it. I want to learn the meaning of it. And when I read this passage of Scripture... What am I to draw from it? God want me to go drive tent stakes through people's heads? Amen. That might be a private interpretation. But what am I to learn and draw from this passage of Scripture? Well, you know, it's interesting. After the battle is done, in chapter number 5, Deborah the prophetess, she begins to sing a song 
that sort of canonizes the great acts and some of them the shameful acts of those that had a part or abstained from the war. She talks about different tribes of Israel that gave of themselves willingly, that stood in the day of battle, and then others, sadly, that were absent. Can I just say this? One day there's going to be a song sung about our life at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, used to in ancient days when they sang songs, it was to communicate a history. And one of these days there's going to be a song sung when we stand before Christ. I hope it's sung that day that I stood in the day of battle and not that I fled when things got difficult. But when we read through that beautiful and and instructive song that Deborah composes and sings, we come to a stanza about this woman by the name of Jael. And I think when we read what the Word of God says about her, we get an understanding of what we are to learn from her story. Look over in chapter 5 with me. I want to read three verses to you out of chapter 5. Deborah is singing this song about the battle. And she says in verse number 24, Blessed above women shall Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, be. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent. He asked water, and she gave him milk. She brought forth butter in a lordly dish. She put her hand to the nail and her right hand to the workman's hammer. And with the hammer she smote Sisera, she smote off his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. I think the key to understanding the truth of our text tonight is in a phrase that is twice repeated in our passage. Verse 24 says this, Blessed above women shall Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, be. And then lest we miss what God's saying, he echoes it again. He says, blessed shall she be above women in the tent. Why would God say that about this woman, J.L.? Well, he tells us why in verse 25. Because he asked water and she gave him milk. You say, preacher, I'm not tracking with you. Let me say it this way. She did more than what was expected of her. Can I tell you tonight, if your Christianity is going to be anything worth singing about, you're going to have to do more than what is expected of you. The battle was won that day, not because of those that followed orders and marched in line, but because of a person who did more than what was expected of them. Can I tell you how we maintain the status quo? By doing the status quo. Can I tell you how we change the world around us? How we change the life that is ours? Can I tell you how we make a difference around us? We're going to have to go above what is expected of us and do more than the bare minimum of what is required. I want to preach to you on this thought. I guess I'll title it this way. She put her hand to the nail. Here is a woman who looked at her situation and said, I could do the bare minimum. I could maintain the status quo. I could do only what I'll get away with. And can I say, hey, listen, that defines Christianity today. Christianity is defined by people doing as little as is humanly possible. I remember hearing, uh, my dad always said this, and I don't really think it was an instructive fatherly wisdom moment. I think it was more him griping. But it still stuck with me. He always said, you know, dad worked at a plant and dad's not a union person, but the place he worked at was unionized. And, and uh, you know, anytime you got unions, you got problems. Anytime uh, all the Yankees said amen. 
because y'all come from states ruined by them. And uh, any time that you got unions, you, you, you got problems. I'm not saying there hadn't been times in history that they've done good things, but but they, on the whole, they, they cause problems. And Daddy used to always say, son, there are people who make a living out of seeing how little they can possibly do. And I don't know about you, but certainly I've seen on a public job site, unionized, not unionized, that there are people who go through life just trying to do as little as they can possibly get away with. A lot of what's sick about Christianity in the West today is it is defined by people who the measure of their life is not how much they can do, but how little they can do. Am I meeting the bare minimum? Have I met the requirements? And I'm here to tell you tonight, listen, you can live a life like that if you want to. It'll be an empty life. It'll be a miserable life. It'll be a sorrowful life. But if you want to live to the potential that God has for you, you're going to have to quit measuring your life by the lowest common denominator and start saying, God, what is the limit of what I can do for you? She changed the history of her nation, the fate of her neighbors. Simply because she said, I'll do more than what is expected of me. Notice by way of introduction, three things that she rose above. And we have that word twice in verse 24 of chapter 5. Above, blessed, above women. Blessed shall she be above women. Well, what was she above? Well, the Bible reveals this in her story. Let me say number one tonight. She rose above soothing her conscience. I don't know about you, but when I read this, and and we'll say a word about it when we get into the preaching, but certainly J.L. could have looked at it and said, not my problem, and walked away. But here's what she understood, that if she allowed the conscience to be her dictator, then mediocrity would be her course. And a great many Christians today, they do what they do merely that they might be able to pillow their head and sleep in peace at night and try to somehow get some semblance of rest in their day-to-day life. Did you know there's more to life than just barely soothing your conscience? I would say this, that the joy of the Lord lives in the land of those that have pleased not their conscience, but have pleased their Lord. And you often in your life, if the bare minimum is simply, I don't want to feel guilty when I pillow my head, that is a recipe for emptiness in your life. Purpose and joy and contentment comes from being able to pillow your head and say, not just I didn't do anything to embarrass the Lord today, but saying what I did today pleased the Lord and glorified Him. I would say she rose above soothing her conscience. Number two, she rose above societal convention. It's interesting, this is sort of hinted at, and I think this is really what it means. You can get mad at me for what I'm about to say, that'd be fine, I'll give you permission to do it. But when it says, blessed above women shall J.L., the wife of Hebrew that cannot be, blessed shall she be above women in the tent. You notice that phrase, in the tent? Here's why, because the women were expected to be in the tent. Those that were fighting the war were expected to be the men on the battlefield. Now, she could have very easily looked at it and said, this ain't my job. Hey, listen, I'm just a wife. I'm just a mother. I'm just living in this tent. That battle is outside my doors, not inside my doors. Can I tell you this? Hey, listen, uh, the, the mothers, the wives, the daughters, the women that makes the greatest impact in this world are those that recognize that if the war's not stopped outside the tent, sooner or later it's going to come into the tent. And a lot of what's messed up in our world today is that the war is raging. Not out there, man. The war's raging in our home. Can I tell you, hey, listen, you better, you better proactively parent your kids, teach them, instruct them in righteousness and truth. 
You better, you, you ought to look at your kids. You know, we, we, we joked around a little bit this morning and, and made fun of all this trans insanity nonsense. But let me tell you, they are peddling it to your kids. And you think your kids are smart enough to not believe that, but that's what the other parents thought of their kids. And so what do you need to be doing? Well, you need to be consistently, deliberately communicating the truth of the Word of God. Hey, listen, God made you this way. You are this way made in His image. That does not change. You might be going through a confusing period in your life. You might be experiencing things that you can't explain. But the Bible is true no matter what. Instructing them in truth and righteousness. Not just letting them float down the propaganda river that the world is flowing in front of them. She could have looked at it, man, and she could have just said, hey, that's an outside-the-tent problem, not an inside-the-tent problem. But she rose above all those other women sitting in the tent. Why? Because when it came into the tent, she didn't leave the tent, but when it came into the tent, she recognized it and did something about it. Let me say it again. She rose above societal conventions. And I don't mean she was some sort of of modern neo-feminist heroine. What I mean is that she looked at it and said, no one expects me to do anything about this. But it still needs to be done. And so she took task in hand, nail in hand, hammer in hand, and did what needed to be done. Let me tell you, it's an embarrassment. I I have a message. I do. I promise. We complain about this all-out animosity towards masculinity today. We complain about it. We, we, we complain about, you know, Gillette and browbeating men and, and complain about how everybody's talking about toxic masculinity. And let me just say this. It's a hard truth, but men, you better listen to it and you better hear it. Uh, for a long time, uh, church was women's domain. And men were the ones that let that happen. You ever notice how feminine a church is? I, I, I mean, listen, I, I, I don't, and I'm not by any means being complaining. You better be thankful I don't decorate this place. Amen. But have you ever noticed when you go in the church house, there's a feminine touch to everything. It's, it's flowers, it's, it's floral arrangements, it's soft colors. Why is that so common in our culture? I, I mean, I, there ain't, listen, there, there's not a big, you know, 12-point buck hanging up on the wall. Why is that? Because for a lot of years, church was the women's domain. Why was church the women's domain? Because for a lot of years, men wouldn't go. They didn't prioritize it. They didn't make it important. They viewed it as a small, mean, insignificant thing. And I will tell you this, that, that the problems that society has with masculinity today have far more to do with men abdicating their responsibility in generations prior than it does merely the warped mentality of the world around us today. And by the way, that's the greatest thing you can do to shore up the masculinity of your kids and your grandkids. Uh, tell, listen, tell them how God made them and what is expected of them. That's biblical. That's appropriate. That, 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 that's right to do. And, uh, you know, the sad reality is so much has been left to women to have to do because men have not been willing to stand up and do it. She shouldn't have had to do this this day. But she didn't look at it and say, I shouldn't have to do it. She looked at it and said, it's here and I will do it. She rose above soothing her conscience. She rose above societal conventions. Number three, I'd say this. She rose above the status quo. Nobody else was killing Sisera. She could have said, why change anything? By the way, this was highly disruptive to the status quo of her life. Did you notice the Bible tells us that there had been peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite, back in our text, verse 17? She could have said, hey, let's just go along. Hey, Jabin had not enslaved the Kenites. He had enslaved the Israelites. There was peace between the house of Heber and between the throne of Jabin. 
And she could have said, why disrupt things? Why not just leave them as they are? It is maddening to the point of warping our intellect that we can at the same time complain about how everything is and be so addicted to keeping things the way that they are. I mean, it's shocking. It's, it's appalling. And I, and I ain't gonna, I got better things to preach about than politicians. But can I just say this? If you want things to change, I'm not even sure voting for them matters now. But certainly it is true that for, to whatever degree you believe in voting, that if you want things to change, you've got to vote for different people. Well, that's weird. Why would you bow up about that? I thought you wanted things to change. They ain't changing anything, are they? At least not for the better, only for the worse. Can I say in our lives, applying this to the spiritual realm, that it's amazing how we can acknowledge the brokenness of our life and then be unwilling to take any meaningful steps to change what has happened. Man, somebody's going to have to break with the status quo. Somebody's going to have to be willing to be weird if things are going to change. Somebody's going to have to be willing to say, I'm not going to look at, at convention and I'm not going to look at the status quo. I'm not just going to maintain. I'm not just going to doggy paddle my way through life. But I'm willing to do more than what is required of me. When I read this passage, I find she is a woman that rose above all of these things. And in, the question then is asked, in what way did she do this? I, you know, we know the explicit action that she took. She took a nail, she drove it through a man's head, she delivered a nation. But in doing so, we find that there are several considerations that are revealing about her life. And let's just say it this way. These are areas where she was willing to rise above. Areas that she was willing to go further than others were willing to go. I want you to notice a few of them with me tonight. Just 25 or 30 and then we'll be done. Look with me at verse 17. The Bible says this. Back in our text, chapter 4, verse 17. Howbeit Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenai. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenai. This entire passage is framed by the fact that there was an existing peace that lasted between these two houses. And now here's this man that comes by. And I want you to place yourself in jail's shoes. Here is a man that's a representative of a government that you have a peace treaty or a peace accord with. He is fleeing from people that are not your people. He is uh, trying to live to preserve a, 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 an authority that is not your authority, that is not your people. He is trying to oppress the children of Israel whom you presumably know none of. If ever there was a textbook case of somebody saying, this is none of my business, it would be this woman. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. There's a lot of things, a lot of problems are caused in life by taking things that ain't your business and making them your business. And she could have very easily looked at this and said, this is not my problem. I will give this man shelter. I'll send him on his way. I won't help him kill Israelites, but I'm not going to deliver him into their hand either. So here's the question I have to ask. Why did she care so much? Why did she care so much? I want you to notice this tonight. She rose above by her interest. Let me say it this way. She cared more than she had to care. There are some things you have to care about because it's embarrassing if you don't. 
Uh, go to Walmart sometime. And you'll find all the people that have quit caring about anything. Hygiene, appearance, society. They've just quit caring about anything. We often look in disdain at people that live their lives in such shambles as that. Can I say this? Just as there are things that you feel obligated to care about, there are things that you can easily dismiss yourself from caring about. But the question becomes not what you have to care about in life, but what you can care about and what you can change in caring about it. She looked at this, and I want you to notice two thoughts here. Think with me, number one, about the bond that preceded. She could have easily said, this is not my job, it's not my responsibility, and in fact, I would be breaking a bond that already exists. She could have said, my responsibility and my duty lies not with the children of Israel, but rather my responsibility and my duty lies with my husband, Hebrew the Kenite, and and lies with the peace accord that's been made with Jabin the king. And she could have easily checked out of the whole process and said, I don't really care whether he lives or whether he dies. I only know it is not my problem in the first place. But she went above that. Why did she do that? Think with me not only about the bond that preceded this, But think about the bond that prevailed. Now, there's an interesting verse in Judges chapter 4. Look back with me at verse 11. gives this as a little bit of a framework to what takes place in this passage. It says, Now Heber the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent under the plain of Zaanaim, which is by Kedesh. Oh, now we get a little more of the story. What we learn is, in fact, that this is not someone who is random and 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 just sort of insignificantly placed within the text of our story, but we, in fact, learn that this is somebody that does have a prior connection to the children of Israel. Now, you say, well, preacher, that's interesting and everything, but uh, what does that have to do with me, and how does that change my life? I don't think it suggests that she had a love for the Israelites. She was not dwelling amongst them. But when you go back through the history of Moses' father-in-law, who was the priest of Midian, he converted to belief and faith in the God of the Bible. And he wound up being a companion and traveling with the children of Israel on their journeys, on their sojourn. And so at an early day, here's what happened. God had done something incredible in her family. And I think it can rightly be assumed by her actions that evidently this witness of the true God of Israel, it did not stay confined to that one generation, but she did what she did that day, not because she loved Israelites, but because she loved the God of Israel. He had placed, She had placed her faith in Him, and it had transformed their life to such a degree that they had to break fellowship with their pagan family and go and dwell unto themselves. Think with me about the bond that prevailed that day. You say, preacher, why should I care more than other people care? It's exhausting to care. It is a great temptation to quit caring. You feel as though if you just quit caring, it all gets easier. You say, preacher, why should I keep caring? Because of him that careth for you. He loved you when he didn't have to love you. He cared about you when he didn't have to care about you. We got this funny idea about God that he died on the cross of Calvary so that he could become God. <laughs> but the truth is, he was God whether he had died for our sins or not. 
He was not benefited by dying for our sins. We were benefited in it. He didn't become God or secure His divinity or authorize His Godship by doing that. Hey, He was God anyway, but He cared when He didn't have to care. He loved us before we ever loved Him. And you say, preacher, why should I care more than others care? Because God cares more than others care. Nobody loves you like God loves you. I'm going to go ahead and tell you the truth that you'll be, you'll, you'll have great peace of mind if you can appropriate this truth to your life. No one will ever care about you like God cares about you. Hey, listen, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. And as long as you expect others, in fact, let me go a step further. Nobody's going to care more about your life than you do except for God. Don't get your feelings hurt when people don't care about your problems. You probably don't care about theirs. But I'll tell you somebody that does care. And that's the Lord. And because God had made a difference in her family and in her life, she could have looked at it and said, it isn't my job. I don't have to care. It doesn't matter to me. But she looked and said, if I can do something for the God of my soul, then I'll do it. I would say we will not care until we care more about Him than we care about ourselves. I see she rose above by her interest. Then notice number two. Look at verse 18. The Bible says this. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my Lord, turn in to me. Fear not. When he had turned in unto her into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. She rose above by her interest, but number two tonight, she rose above by her involvement. In other words, she cared more than she had to care, but then I see that she risked more than she had to risk. Let me tell you what would have been a perfectly acceptable response in this situation. To conceal this man, let him go, and then immediately send word to Barak of the locations and whereabouts of Sisera. She could have very easily said, this is not my job, and why should I risk my life for a cause that's not my own? But the reason we're preaching about her tonight is because she didn't let the lowest common denominator be the metric for what she did. She was willing to risk more than she had to risk. Think about the great danger of her decision. I mean, if at any moment Sisera had grown suspicious, he could have and likely would have killed her to conceal his own whereabouts. Not only that, it would have been very possible that had she concealed Sisera, And the children of Israel then come afterwards that they might have killed her had she not been able to kill him first because she had hidden him from their presence. Let's say she did exactly what she did do. She took and drove a tent stake into her, uh, into his head. What would have happened if a bunch of Canaanites had rolled up on her house not soon after that? In fact, the way I see it, all the risk is hers in this situation. There is no one else that is showing any risk and she is not in any way, at least not temporally speaking, getting any benefit from what she's doing. She placed herself in great danger by what she was doing. Listen, I'm not advising or advocating for you to not do anything that would imperil your life, but I will just say this. If we live our life in fear, we're not going to do anything for God. Serving God comes with risk. Walking by faith comes with risk. That is intrinsic to the nature of faith. And if our metric is, I'm only going to play safe with God, we're probably not going to accomplish very much. 
You know why that is? Because then all the devil has to do is just put even the faintest threat or hint of some danger. And it's enough to stop us. One of the things, one of the things that was, has been troubling over the past few years, it's not that society responded the way that it did to everything that happened with, with government oppression and COVID and all these different things. It was just how immediate and readily that all of society immediately bought and believed everything that was said. And, you know, I mean, listen, I'm not above anyone else. My life can be threatened. There are things more precious to me than me. I understand that. I think we all understand that. But we need to recognize that in our life, if we're going to walk by faith, there's going to be risk associated with it. And that's what I see in this passage. I see the great danger of her decision. So then why would she do it? Was she doing it because she knew that things would work out well? Well, no, not necessarily. But here's what she was doing. She was putting her faith in the God whose cause she had picked up. I see the great danger of her decision, but then I see the great dependence of her. If you had asked J.L., how's this going to work out? She would have probably said something like this. I don't know, but I'm trusting God. And if you don't at some point in your life find yourself when people look at you and saying, how's this going to work out? I happen to say, I don't know, but I'm trusting God. You're probably getting done about exactly as much as the devil is content with you getting done. Only when we walk by faith do we move beyond the reach of his will, his plans for our life and move into the realm of what God deems possible and providential. As long as we're willing to say, I will walk in this safe little bubble that there's never any risk associated with it, I promise you, you will get things done. They just won't be great things. They won't be unique things. They won't be things that are sung about in songs. And Listen, I'm not talking about the praise and accolades of men, but I mean things that you can say with, with a holy pride on the day that you stand before the Lord. Lord, I'm glad that you used me in this fashion and in this way. I see she she put her hand to the nail. She rose above by her interest and by her involvement. But then notice a third thought. Look at verse 19. The Bible says this. He said unto her, give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink. I don't know about you, but unless I'm really, really thirsty, I don't even consider water a drink. My wife gets on to me all the time uh, because she'll say, you need to drink some water. I tell her all the time, I say, I do drink water. She said, no, you don't. I said, what do you make that tea out of? That's airtight logic. I don't care who you are. She'll say, it's not water, it's tea. I say, how do you make it? She said, I boil water. I said, that's exactly right. Do you think you've done some kind of alchemy and changed the properties of water by boiling it? I don't think so. It is water. It's just water plus. Somebody say amen to that. He asked for water to drink. He said, for I'm thirsty. But what'd she do? She gave him a proper drink. She opened a bottle of milk and gave him to drink and covered him. Now, you say, okay, preacher, I guess that's interesting. Our passage in chapter 5 reveals a little bit more. She not only gave him milk, the Bible says she brought forth butter in a lordly dish. Now, what was she doing? Why did she give him milk and butter? Well, for one very simple reason. You load someone up with enough milk and butter and they's already tired, he was going to fall asleep. And so her intention was to lull him to sleep that she might take his life. All he asked was water. Water at one time was cheap before they started bottling it. Milk was expensive. Butter was expensive. Let me say it this way. I see she rose above by her investment. And let me say it this way. She not only cared more than she had to care and risked more than she had to risk, but she gave 
more than she had to give. She could have very easily said, you want water? I'll give you water. But she saw an opportunity. It cost her a little something. Opportunities do. I remember one time here, and it's always stuck with me, Dr. Curtis Hudson said, nothing's ever been done for God with spare change or spare time. Takes investment. Everything. Listen, we're getting ready to do our church camp here in in like five months that feels like five weeks. (laughs) We'll be here before we know it. It costs a lot to do that. People ask us sometimes, how do you turn a profit? (laughs) What's a profit? A profit? I don't even know you. You mean like Elijah or something? Like I don't, a profit. We lose money on camp every year. Now, let me just pause and say this. Because the goodness of God's people, we ain't floating no checks. And God always blesses over and above the costs associated with it. But I'm just telling you this. It's an investment. It's an investment in eternal things. That's what we're doing. That's the purpose of it. And we don't go into it saying, what can we do it at the minimal possible cost? I think one of the great disgraces, and certainly a church should be a good steward of its resources. God's going to judge us one day for how we've been a steward of his resources. But I would simply say this. Hey, there's a lot of churches that will gladly live in houses with sealed tile ceilings while they let the house of God fall down around. Wall Ridge is not one of them, and I praise God for it. But what a disgrace it is to believers when they don't think God is worth the investment of even the very things that God has blessed them with. Let me say it this way. Number one, I see she gave of her possessions. She had milk. She had butter. She had milk because God caused that cow to bring forth. She had butter because God gave her the strength to churn and to make it. And so when now God's called upon her to give it, she doesn't balk for one moment. She says, Lord, this is yours and I'll use it in your service. I'll tell you how we become stingy people with God is by believing that what we have did not come from his hand in the first place. When we recognize, and something that's interesting, the more radical a government becomes, the more like God it tries to make itself. And so that it becomes not government, but god And uh, one of the things that always resonate in my mind, I remember uh, Barack Obama saying this a few years ago. This is a very famous quote. People got mad about it at that time because at that time people still believed in individual property rights. And, uh, and, and he said this. He was talking about, about your business. And he said, that business, you didn't build that. You remember that? Remember when he said that? He said, that business you've got, you didn't build that. Hey, he talked about the house you've got, you didn't build that. He said, you had to drive on roads that the government paved. You, you, you had to use resources that the government put at your disposal. And what he was saying is, hey, that ain't yours, that's government's. Now, this is a radical, radical and tyrannical and oppressive worldview because the appropriate response is not, is this government's? The appropriate response is the government is the people's. The government can't own something uh, in lieu of the people owning it because the people own the government in the first place. But it was interesting that he said that because he touched on a truth that does exist. It just doesn't exist in the governmental realm. It exists in the spiritual realm. And I will tell you this. Hey, that, 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 that job, that, that job, that business you bit, you didn't build that. Neither did government. God did. That house you built. Hey, you didn't build that. God built that. That family you've got. Hey, you didn't do that. God did that. 
she recognized that everything she had was from the Lord and therefore only inappropriately should be at his disposal. She gave of her possession, but then notice number two, she gave of her place. You know, oftentimes it's said that a woman's home is her castle, her domain, her place of, of jurisdiction. And certainly I know I feel this way about my home. My home is a place of safe haven and refuge. Often, I don't know if you ever feel this way. I hope you do. Let me just say, I hope you do. I hope you feel this way. I hope when you pull in the driveway at home, you feel like, I'm finally there. This home that she had, this tent, was a place of refuge, safe haven. It was a place her own. It was a place where she wielded authority, at least to some degree. It had the administration of the household in some way. But she's willing to yield that to God if God requires it. There's a lot of us, we'll give him our possessions, we just won't give him any of our place. And one of the things that has become common, and I think it's very, very destructive to modern day Christianity, is this notion of subcontracting out our spiritual responsibility. By the way, that's part of the reason, deliberately so at this church, we do things like that track-a-day challenge. You ought to give to missions. You ought to give to missions. You ought to give to missions. But don't think that giving to missions means you don't have to be a missionary. Hey, listen, you, you, you can't subcontract out your responsibilities to God. Just write a check and say, not my problem anymore. And I would say in your life that you cannot displace a life of obedience. How do I say this? You cannot displace a life of obedience with an act of token admiration or devotion to God. Now, what do you mean by that, preacher? I mean this. Going to church is not the same as living a life surrendered to God. Living a life surrendered to God will involve church. You better believe it. But there's a lot of people that have the idea, well, I've done my part. I went to church. Now, let me tell you something. There ain't a corner of your life that don't belong to God. I, and this, listen, she understood that. She, she, she rose above by her investment. Then verse 21 says this, then J.L., Heber's wife, took a nail of the tin. <laughs> Husband, don't, don't make your wife mad, please. I love you. I don't want to preach any funerals that I don't have to. Women's mean, man. Man wouldn't have even thought to do this. Man might have hit him between the nose or the eyes or something, but I mean, that's, it, it's troubling. It's disturbing. Can I tell you a story? I love this story. This involves Brother Kerry and involves my mama. It's one of my favorite stories. That you got, you got time, you know. I, I took watch off. I don't, I don't even care. So one time years ago, Brother Kerry was down here and he was going to college down at UT. He's educated and he was going to college at UT. And, uh, getting a degree in something he don't use. I don't know. But, uh, but he, he was living down here and he got it in his head that he wanted to put out some, some, he wanted to hunt. He missed hunting and he wanted to put out some traps. I don't know if he's trying to catch rabbits or what. Usually a rabbit trap don't catch nothing but a skunk or a possum. But, but he decided he was going to put these, these traps out, these live catch traps, right? And so he went to a buddy of ours who lived down kind of on Beaver Creek, and 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 he asked this guy's parents, said, would it be okay if I put one of these live traps out? They lived right on the creek. Would it be okay if I put one of these live traps out back here? And they said, yeah, that'd be fine. Just make sure you check it and everything. So he put that out there. One day he gets, I don't know if it's a call or a text, voicemail saying, hey, there's something in this trap. You need to come down and see. 
So he goes down and, and he, he checks this trap. And lo and behold, there's a raccoon that has stuck itself in this trap. Now, uh, raccoons is mean. I don't know if you've ever been around a raccoon. Raccoons are very antisocial. They don't like you and they don't want you around. And they got sharp, tiny little teeth and claws. And let me tell you something, man. They'll chew you up. I mean, they're no joke. So now Brother Kerry has this raccoon trapped in this cage. And then he realizes, now here's what most people would do. The humane thing to do would, would be to either release it or take it and, and, and dispose of it. Okay? But he realized he had a problem. He's down here from college. He didn't have no firearms. He had no way that he could do it. So he called mom and dad and he said, listen, I got this raccoon stuck in this trap. I do not know what to do with it. Is it okay if I go get a gun so that I can go and, and shoot this raccoon? And they said, no, it's not okay that you get a gun and go down there and go shooting it off in halls and scaring half the country. And he said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have, I have no idea what to do. Now, listen to this. This is what my mother told him. This is the advice. And by the way, there's a second half of this story that's a little more grisly that we could talk about later, but time won't permit it. This is what mom said. Mom said, she said this right there. This is what she said. She said, here's what you do. He said, there's a roll of black plastic out in the woodshed. She said, go get that roll of black plastic. And she said, here's what you do. You take it and get your roll of duct tape and start your truck up and take that and duct tape the end of that black plastic around the tailpipe of your truck. And then take the other end of that black plastic and drape it out and make a sort of fumigation tunnel and put it over the cage and gas the raccoon to death. Now, there's a funny end to this story, which is that Brother Kerry gassed the raccoon to death, he thought, only to discover after he had dumped it out that it was not dead, it had just been rendered unconscious, at which point it starts to wake up and he does a dumb thing. I still don't know why you did this. The thing to have done would have been to get in the car and wait for it to wake up and run off. He instead stomped his foot on it to hold it in place. Now, let me tell you something. You do that to a live raccoon, you might as well have stepped on a landmine. You are stuck at that point. I'll tell you the rest of the story later. It gets a little grisly. But you know the, you know the, you know the thing that I took away from that more than anything? was a greater fear of my mother. What? It's scary, isn't it? That's something the mob would do. That's terrifying. It would have never entered my mind to do such a thing as that. Son, let me tell you. Yeah, I thought, I went to her house afterwards. She offered me a cup of milk. I didn't take it. I said, I don't know what you're getting ready to do. I, it's, it, but here's what JL did, man. She, she, she took a nail of the tent and took a hammer in her hand and went softly unto him and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. Let me say it this way. Uh, she rose above by her initiative. And let me say it this way. She did more than she had to do. All joking aside, that had to be a difficult thing for her to do. I mean, you understand, this is not a man that she hates. This is a man that is a general of a king that they have had a, a peace treaty with. 
she has probably met him at some point in her life and probably bears no ill will or animosity towards him. And yet she takes his life, and not just in some slight insignificant way, but in a very personal, intimate, gruesome manner. She takes his life. That had to be hard. I want you to notice two things. One, she did it without request. Nobody asked her to do it. One of the things we're trying to teach my son is don't do things without people asking or telling you to do it. Because sometimes in his ambition and zeal, but also in his youth, he'll do things that can cause problems. He'll do something that's just some kind of work that we have to go back in and correct and redo. But I would say that in our life, while certainly we need to be to have discernment about what is within the purview of our skill set and ability, we need to make sure what we're doing is a help to the Lord and is pleasing to Him. And our life certainly should be driven, there's no question, by God's instruction and direct leadership and guidance. All that having been said, why is it that we have to be asked to serve God? Why won't we do it just because it needs to be done? It's amazing how many times that things have to fall almost to the very precipice of, of, of just complete disrepair. I'm not talking about buildings and things like that. I'm talking about ministries, opportunities, before we're willing to step up and say, I'll do that. I noticed, man, she did it without request. Nobody asked her to do that. Nobody enlisted her. Nobody signed her up. Nobody conscripted her into this responsibility. But she saw a job, and she said, I'll do it. She did it without request. Number two, she did it without reservation. That had to be hard to do. But she didn't hesitate. She knew the moment was then, and she took the opportunity. You have a moment right now in life to serve God. I don't know what it will look like six months or a year from now, but I know that today you have an opportunity to serve the Lord. And the great tragedy is how often do we hesitate to serve the Lord, to be used of Him, only to watch that opportunity pass by and float down the stream of time, never to return to us again. Man, she did what she did because she did more than she had to do. And it had to be difficult, but it was a job that needed to be done. Finally, and I'm done tonight. Look at verse 22, 23. The Bible says, And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said unto him, Come, I will show thee the man whom thou seekest. When he came into her tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. I see she rose above by her influence. Let me just back up and say it this way. She cared more than she had to care. She risked more than she had to risk. She gave more than she had to give. She did more than she had to do. And because of all that, here's what she did. She achieved more than others achieved. We're preaching about her tonight because she didn't just float along the status quo. She went above and beyond and two things happened. One, a great triumph was achieved. The battle was won that day. I'll tell you something, man, and I don't know. NSA may swoop down in here and carry me off some black site prison for what I'm about to say. But it's high time, man, people started saying it. We got a country because of people that did more than what was expected. We've got a country because of people that didn't look at it and say status quo, but instead did more than what was requested or required or expected of them.
why you and I sit in freedom tonight. Whatever freedom's left, that's why we do. And in our lives, I would say great spiritual battles are won, not by just maintaining the status quo, but by willing, being willing to rise above those things. A great triumph was achieved. But then I like the way the Bible says it. I always like the way the Bible says it. If I don't like the way the Bible says it, I need to get me right, not change my Bible. But I love the way the Bible says this. So God subdued on that day Jabin, king of Canaan. Whoa, God showed up. I didn't read his name anywhere before that. But then when it's all done, here's what the Holy Ghost says. The Holy Ghost says, you thought it was J.L. And it was her. It was her human hands. It's her human heart and her human mind. But behind all of that was God working a great victory. And I'd say it this way. At the end of the day, the glory is not given to J.L., The glory is given to God. A great triumph was achieved, but number two, a great testimony was achieved. The reason we live and draw breath is to give glory to God. And that's going to take more than just doing what is common and status quo. Until the measure of our life becomes not the minimum of what we can do, but the limit of what we can do. Not the lowest common denominator, but the very lengths and stretches of the imagination of how we can yield our life to God. Until that becomes true, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to abide in the tent and do what everyone else is doing. Great things are done when we rise above those things and do more than we have to do. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I don't know how God may have spoken to your heart tonight, but I want you to feel liberty to respond to Him. And so there's a place down here at the altar where you can meet the Lord and talk about these things. Could be something in your life, some area of disobedience God needs to address. But it might not even be that tonight. It might just be the fact that God seeks and desires and, and, and longs to do great things. But you've limited the Holy One of Israel. Whatever God's dealt with you about, would you meet Him in the altar tonight? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.